Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join me again in the book of Hebrews today, chapter 11. Chapter 11. In many respects, everything that has happened thus far in the book of Hebrews is intended to get us to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is the uh, culmination of a long section in the book of Hebrews as well as the climax of his thinking. And it helps us today to reflect upon it afresh. Uh, I would suggest that for many of us, the chapter that we would be the most familiar with in the book of Hebrews is this chapter, the 11th chapter. Uh, We're going to work our way through it rather slowly. Let me uh, call your attention to one fact. You'll note that uh, beginning in verse 4, he mentions the first of the so-called patriarchal examples. He mentions Abel and the story of Cain. He goes from there to Enoch, verse 7. He mentions Noah, verse 8. He mentions Abraham. He's going to talk about Abraham quite a bit, uh, all the way down to verse 20. He mentions Isaac, 21 Jacob, 22 Joseph, 23 Moses. He's going to eventually get to verse 32, and he's going to run out of time and he's going to say time fails me I could tell you about Gideon Barak Samson Jephthah David Samuel etc in other words the 11th chapter is the chapter where he is sort of like a prosecuting attorney and he's just laying out evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence and he does it again and again and again and again And uh, he's going to make a point, and he's going to make it multiple times. Again, there is ample evidence in the Scripture that preachers have always repeated themselves. And we'll see that plainly in Hebrews chapter 11. The reason for all of that is he's trying to convince us beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is exactly who God says he is, that Jesus has come to reconcile us to God, and that if we leave Jesus, we will leave the path that has been blazed before us by Abel, by Enoch, by Noah, by Abraham, by Isaac, by Jacob, etc., etc., etc. If you would go to God, you will take the old path. Because there is nothing new under the sun. And God has ordained a way, and it is the ancient way. And the ancient way is the right way. It is the way that leads to life. And few there are that find it. You will always be outnumbered in the culture. If you're looking for a crowd to go with you, Well, you might be satisfied that the crowd is not as big as the crowd that's not going with you. Because this is the way of God. And we must look to God and not follow the massive crowd, but instead follow the truth as God has revealed him. So we want to consider today the opening section of Hebrews 11. I'm going to 
just focus our attention today on two verses, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Not because there's not a lot more to say, but primarily because there's a whole lot more to say than I'm going to say today. I, uh, I have reams and reams of material, and I don't have time. So let's read these two verses, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. By it, the people of old receive their commendation. I want to just give you two points. If you're looking for an outline, here's one. Saving faith is certain toward Christ. Saving faith is certain toward Christ. We'll talk about that in detail momentarily. And then in the second verse, we can summarize by simply saying, by faith, all are saved, and without faith, none are saved. By faith, all are saved, and without faith, none are saved. Now, we're going to spend uh, multiple weeks. I'm not sure whether we're going to do it in three weeks or four weeks, but we're going to spend several weeks in chapter 11, and we're going to see the phrase by faith multiple times. This is a foretaste of next week. But notice in verse 3, the verse begins by faith. Verse 4, by faith. Verse 5, by faith. Verse 7, by faith. Verse 8, by faith. That refrain is going to repeat again and again and again and again. By faith, by faith, by faith. Now, faith is not a complicated word. We all know what it means. We use it in various ways. It simply means to believe. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that there are nuances of belief. Uh, You can believe in things that uh, are not true. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Well, I won't give you, but they're usually associated with holidays. Is it possible to believe certain things associated with holidays that turns out aren't true? Yes, they are. You can believe those things. And you can believe them passionately, you can believe them devotedly, you can believe them with all your heart, but it doesn't make them true. So you can believe in things that in fact are not true. You can also believe in things that are true. I would ask you, did the sun come up this morning? Yes. Did the sun come up in the east? Yes. Do you believe that tomorrow the sun's going to come up in the east? Well, if you don't, Brothers, you're not going to be here because it's going to come up in the east. And if it doesn't, the world has lost its bearings and we've all gone to glory. Because in this world, every day, the sun comes up in the east. Now, the technicians in the bunch would tell me the sun never comes up. The earth just rotates. I know that, but let me use language we're familiar with. The sun's coming up in the east. So you can believe that. And that's a fact. So the fact is, it's not the strength of the belief that matters. It's the object that dictates whether or not the belief or the faith is well-placed. So it is that object that we want to consider together this morning. So let's read again verse 1, since we're only reading two verses. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, saving faith, as we shall see, is certain toward Christ. 
We know this based on this verse. Let me take you back to chapter 10, verse 39. For we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So you remember, as he concluded chapter 10, he is warning us against shrinking back. We are not to come to Christ to drink deeply from the fountain of his mercy and forgiveness and then somehow shrink back. Now that begs the question that I would suspect is on at least the minds of many, if not all of us, and that is, well, how much faith is saving faith? Or let me say it another way. Am I in danger of losing my salvation if, in fact, I have doubts? Doubts. Now, anytime you talk about belief and encourage people to strong belief, people feel guilty about the fact that they don't. Right? I mean, if, if, you, don't, if you don't look at your own faith and deal with, if you will, the fragility of it, 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 it is somewhat fragile at times. You can look back, if not today, you can look back a year ago or 10 years ago or a lifetime ago for some, and you can say, you know, there was a season in my life when I really was wobbly as regards faith. And I want to encourage you this morning. The, the fact is that those efforts, if you will, those efforts to believe all the more, to believe in spite of, or to struggle with belief, those efforts are used of God. I wouldn't say designed by God, but they are used of God in our lives to build strength. So the question is not, is your faith wobbly, but is your faith gone beyond wobbly and latched on all the more? Have you processed that well and come to a landing spot of confidence? That's the question. God is plenty capable of helping us when we're wobbly. He does it all the time. He does it today. People are wobbly. They're wobbly about all kinds of things. They're wobbly about eternal life. They're wobbly about heaven. They're wobbly about whether or not they actually want to go to heaven. They they don't want to leave their mama. They don't want to leave their daddy. They don't want to leave their spouse. They don't want to leave their children. I don't want to go to heaven. People make statements all the time about these kinds of things. They're just wobbling. People say, well, I'm mad at God. I'm disappointed with God. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed with the way God works. I'm disappointed with this or that and so forth and so on. People are wobbly. They just are. People lose loved ones and they get angry. Get angry at God. They get hurt. They get hurt by Christian people, and they get angry at God because God could have stopped it. God could have prohibited this, and and people are just wobbly. Listen, brothers, you're not a judge. You're not even a good judge of your own faith, frankly. Maybe maybe you're just an accuser of others. Maybe Maybe you like to point out the flaws in other people. And the reason for that, of course, the seedbed of that, the soil from which that kind of accusation or that accusative spirit is, is your own disappointment with yourself. I don't want to go psychoanalytical on you here, but I'm telling you, hurt people hurt people. That being said, you may be wobbly today in your faith, and you hear all this faith talk, and you say, well, I don't have that kind of faith. My faith is a little weak. Well, let me encourage you. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is to strengthen weak faith. So if you've got weak faith, this is exactly the book you need to read. 
If you've got wobbly faith, this is exactly where you need to be today. And you need to say, that's exactly where I want to land. That's where I'm going. That's, that's where I intend to be. When this is all said and done, when my life is over, that's the kind of rock-solid faith I want. Help me get there now, sooner rather than later. Read it again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's two words here that are important. We're going to think about them for just a moment. The first word is the word translated assurance. The King James has the word substance. Substance. Uh, If you read all the modern translations, none of them use the word substance. There is a reason for that. This particular word, hypostasis in Greek, uh, can be translated variously. It can either, it literally means that which stands under. So it's often translated as the word foundation. It's the foundation upon which you build something, that which stands under. So the King James uses the word substance and treats it as the object of your faith. In other words, your, your faith has substance because it stands upon that which it is under it. And that which is under it is the work of God, the promises of God, the glories of God. And that is true, absolutely true. There is an objective value to faith. We're not believing in nothing. We're believing in something. And we're believing in someone. I'll show you that plainly momentarily. But uh, there's also a different aspect of that. And uh, this particular word in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, is translated confidence. Confidence. Now, confidence is a word that, that, that has a subjective value. It has to do with how much belief you have. It, it's innate within yourself. It's a subjective value. So the, the, the translators here take that approach. Others... That, that we read, use the word assurance. The NIV, some of you read the NIV, translates this verb being sure, being sure. So it, the value is therefore not resident in the foundation. The value is what you think about the foundation, what you, what you believe. Read it again. Now, faith is the assurance that I have in myself of that, or Faith is the substance that I'm actually hoping in. It's either the object of my action or it's the assurance that's resident within me. You say, well, that sounds like a bunch of splitting hairs. Well, it is. But that's why translators actually get paid to do what they do. (laughs) Because there are nuances to language that we need to know. What has all that got to do with this? Well, some folks understand this word, assurance, and supply the word assurance, some substance. But the next word actually helps us. Here's the word, conviction, the conviction of things not seen. The word conviction here means to be sure. I'm convicted about something. I'm sure about something. But how can we be sure about things that are unseen? Think about that. How can we have any confidence in things you can't see? Well, we do it all the time, don't we? We have confidence in many things that we don't see. I don't see, since I've used creation already, 
I don't see the earth rotating. But I see the effects of the earth rotating. The sun comes up. Now, you'd say, well, you, if you had better equipment, you could see. It is actually seeable, and it is. But I'm talking about with my own eyes. I can't see the earth rotate. But it is. It's rotating. There are many other things that I can't see. I can't see God. I can't see the glories of heaven. I can't see the ministry of angels. I read something this week that I thought illustrated this really well. This is a commentary by Kent Hughes, longtime pastor in Chicago, on the book of Hebrews. And he gives this reminder from the Old Testament. I thought it was extremely valuable. Here's an example of what you cannot see. I'm just going to read one paragraph that Kent Hughes writes. Genesis 28 records how Jacob, on that miserable night that he fled from Esau into the wilderness, forlorn and alone, laid his weary head on a rock to sleep and, quote, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were descending and ascending on it. Genesis 28:12. In a flash, Jacob saw what, he'd been around, what had been around him all the time, angelic commerce between heaven and earth on his behalf. The account records that, quote, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Genesis 28, 16 and 17. Jacob then saw the unseen spiritual order, and that is what we see by faith. That's a good illustration. Genesis 28. Jacob falls asleep and has a dream, and in the dream he sees a ladder or a stairway, stairwell if you will, a ladder, and angels are up and down the ladder. Jacob doesn't know that this is reality. Jacob doesn't see this until God gives him this vision in a dream. But it turns out this is reality. It turns out that there are angels leaving heaven and going back to heaven every moment of every day in and around you and me. It turns out there are chariots of fire in the hills. It turns out God is working through unseen forces day in and day out that you never see. You just see the, res the residue of their work. You see your loved ones healed. You see your friend helped. You see your need met. You see even before you even knew that you had a need, God worked to move in that situation. You see how this changed or that changed or this didn't turn out or this fear was never realized. And on and on we could go. You see the work of the unseen forces. Remember, we don't war against flesh and blood. We war against things we can't see. It turns out that it's not illogical to believe in things you cannot see. Now, the world wants to mock such faith. The world rejects faith in God, and they do so on the basis of a very common caricature. It goes something like this. You believe things without evidence. Translate that. You believe things without seeing them. You just believe things. 
You believe that there are angels helping you. You believe there are angels serving God. You believe that there are angels warring against demons. You believe in all these things. You believe that Jesus, who none of us have ever seen, actually lived. You believe that Jesus, none of whom of us have ever seen, actually went away to heaven. You believe that Jesus, none of us who have ever seen, actually rose from the dead. You believe that Jesus... None of us who have ever seen him, actually you believe he's coming back and he's going to come back and put an end to all the anarchy in the world. You believe silly things like this. You, you're blind to the truth. And the truth is that which you cannot see cannot be believed. That which you cannot prove according to your eyes, according to your mind, according to your senses, should not, must not be believed. It's naivete it's gullibility it's foolish well I would ask you do you believe in things that you cannot see I do but I don't believe those things blindly I believe those things because the God who promised those things has done other things. In other words, the future reliability of God is based upon the past faithfulness of God. Let me give you a, a favorite illustration of this. Turn, if you will, in the Old Testament to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We'll not belabor this psalm. If you're uh, following along with me uh, on Wednesday mornings on Facebook, I do a little thing I call the Word on Wednesday. Uh, if you're following along, we haven't gotten to the 78th Psalm, but we will. And when we do, you're going to hear exactly what I'm about to say again. You'll note that Psalm 78 has 72 verses. Do you, this, is, this is all part of the Psalter. This is all part of the ancient hymn book of Israel. Can you imagine a song with 72 verses? Oh, well, that's not the biggest psalm by far, Right? Psalm 119, much bigger, twice the size of this. But what you really would find interesting in Psalm 78, and this psalm is almost repeated, uh, certainly in intent, if not verbatim, in Psalm 106. So two songs that sound very similar. Do you all criticize songs? Because, you know, we sing the same kind of songs. Yeah, I know. I tell Michael all the time, just sing about the blood, the cross, and forgiveness. I don't care what we sing. Just sing about the blood, the cross, and forgiveness. Everything else is gravy. The blood, the cross, and forgiveness. That's what we got to sing about. we got to sing about it and sing about it and sing about it. Because we don't believe it. Unless we sing about it. So here's a song. So you, can you imagine coming to church and you sang this song? And what would this song tell you about? This song is a historical song. This song is going to tell you about the history of Israel. And I'm not going to belabor it because we could be here all day. But I want you to notice, give ear, O people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and, uh, and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide from their children, but tell to the coming generation and glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. And the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. Arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. 
Tell your children the history of his mighty deeds, of his great works. Tell him the stories of your life. Tell him the story. Tell your children, little Johnny, little Mary, tell them these stories. Talk to them about these things because they need to know that God is great. And they need, by, by hearing these stories, to develop a confidence in God, an assurance in God, or to use the phrase he uses in Psalm 78, 7, to set their hope in God. Now, what is the stories that he now illustrates? Look, look what he says, verse 9. The Ephraimites armed with their bow. Uh, verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. Uh, verse 13, he divided the sea. Verse 15, he split rocks in the wilderness. Verse 16, he made streams come out of the rock, yet they sinned. Verse 18, they tested God. They spoke against God. Verse 20, he struck the rock again. Verse 21, uh, a fire was kindled against Jacob because they did not believe in God. Uh, verse 24, he rained down on them manna to eat, gave them grain from heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. Nobody had ever seen manna before, by the way. But it turns out there was such a thing, even though you have never seen it. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Verse 34, he killed them. They remembered that God was their rock. They repented, and they flattered him with their tongue. He remembered that they were flesh. Verse 41, they tested God again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Verse 43, he performed his signs in Egypt. Again, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams, sent them frogs. He reminds them of the plagues of Egypt. And he goes on and on and on. We could, we could carry on this same way, but this is a historical psalm. He is reminding Israel, I want you to sing about the mighty acts of God yesterday. Sing about those mighty acts of God, those mighty deeds of God, those mighty glories of God, because your people will learn by these songs. So what is God telling us? He's telling us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the confidence that we have that the things that we hope for are actually true. Now, some would say that's a pipe dream. It's wishful thinking. It's blind belief. It doesn't have any basis in fact. But friend, it does. Why do we have the Old Testament? Why do you need to read the Old Testament? Why do you need to understand the Old Testament? Because this is the history of God's work with his people. People like me, people like you, people like them. This is a reminder that God is, has been at work and that God is consistent, that he is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his people. He is faithful to those who hope in him. It's the assurance of things hoped for. We hope that God will save us. We hope that God will rescue us. We hope that the end of our life is not the end. We hope that the end of our life is not just destruction and decay. Is cancer our ultimate goal? Well, listen, if cancer is my ultimate goal, let's just die now before we get it. If, if some kind of tragic end is the end, then let's just die now before. But friend, that's not the end. And why, why does that matter? It matters because those who put their hope in God are vindicated. Those who hope in God live. The cancer doesn't have the last word. That death in every 
form doesn't have the last word. That God himself, it turns out, has the last word because he always has. And we read it again and 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 again. And we need to teach it to our children and teach it to our grandchildren and teach it to every child coming behind us to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Why do we care about young people? Because we want them to know what we know. We want them to be saved. We want them to be rescued. We want them to be reconciled. And we want those who come after them, the generation that follows, to know the same truth. We want to take as many people to glory with us as we can. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I decided this week, <laughs> this word hope just really, really sort of captivated me. I'm, I've got a new book idea. Susan tired of me here talking about books. She said, when are you going to write those books? I don't know. But I've decided this week I'm going to write a book, and it's going to be on hope. Hope is an underutilized value. <laughs> I, I think about it. I encourage you to think about it. Why do you hope in God? Why do you want to hope in God? Why do you need to hope in God? And I'll tell you the answer to that is because you, you will hope in something. Just think about it for a moment. You know, if somebody's, if somebody's uh, happy, if somebody's uh, carefree, if somebody's got a little spring in their step, invariably it's, it's because of some circumstance. You could point to some circumstance. You know, they... They, they had a happy thing happen here, a happy thing happened there. They're looking forward to a happy thing next week or whatever. You know, somebody they haven't seen in a long time, they got an appointment with them or so forth. Their kids are coming, their grandkids are coming. You know, it's just people get happy. People get happy about circumstances all the time. And, and we translate that. And well, why are you happy? You know, what's going on? You know, what, you, boy, you're, you woke up on the right side of the bed. You're awful bubbly today. What's going on? And they'll tell you something. Something has given them hope. Now, they won't use that terminology, but that's, that's really what it is. When you distill it, boil it all down, there's something that gives them joy, that gives them hope. Hope for living, hope, hope for happiness, hope for better days. And, and, and the converse is true. You know, if the world, the weight of the world is on you, you, you don't have enough this or you don't have enough of that, and you, 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 your friends have left you and so forth. You read the Psalms and, and David is lamenting again and again the absence of circumstantial hope. So hope is a pretty important thing. Turns out it's very, very important. You'll no, notice again in verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I was chewing on that this week and reflected on Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Can, will you turn there real quickly? Romans chapter 1. Verse 18 through verse 23. We just read this paragraph quickly. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, this is that thing where God is taking the unseen God and showing it 
So God is showing himself. So what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now stop there a moment. We didn't read Hebrews 11.3, but Hebrews 11.3, next week, we're going to begin with creation. By faith, God created the world, and we believe that God created the world by faith. Why? Is that naivete? Is that blind belief? Is that ignorant Christian people just believing non-scientific stuff? Well, on the contrary, Romans 1, 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You can look at the sun and reject the one who made it. Or you can look at the sun and believe the one who made it. It's up to you. For, verse 21, and here's where the rubber hits the road. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, my summary phrase for that, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. My summary phrase for that, it seems to me, the scripture's summary phrase for that is, they did not hope in God. I know that God did that, but I reject God. I don't hope in God. God's not the answer. God's not my supply. God's not my reservoir. God's not my resource. God's not the one who gave his only begotten son because his only begotten son never came and on and on it goes. The reason people don't believe is because their hope ultimately is not in God. In spite of the fact that God has revealed himself, they reject God because they don't want God. You've heard the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. How do you make people hope in God? How do you make people want God? How do you make people desire God or give thanks to God? Let me tell you how. You don't. How do you make a thirsty man drink? You don't. How do you make a hungry man eat? You don't. There's something in him that's driving him. And you have nothing to do with it. You may be contending in your mind. I have people in my life, in my family, loved ones, friends, co-workers, classmates. And you, you look at them and you say, they don't believe. They don't believe. How can I make them believe? Get over yourself, friend. You can't make anybody believe. But you have a role to play. If you're the cook, serve them a good meal. If you've got the water bottle, give them the water. If you've got the gospel, give them the gospel. You can't make them want the gospel. You can't make them want to honor God. You can't make them want to hope in God. But you can certainly give them God. Think again about the people that are attractive, that are appealing. It's the people who are actually walking with some pep, walking with some energy, walking with some joy. If your joy is in God, that makes joy attractive. 
Your joy attractive. Your God attractive. I'll continue. Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Why did they worship such things? Because their hope was not in God. Their hope is in other things. I'll ask you a question. What if you were on a game show, and behind door number one is your prize, and you win some contest, silly as it may be, and they pull back the curtain of the door or whatever, and uh, there's a nice big boat. Boat. And, of course, the audience is coached to clap and celebrate and everything. It's a great big boat, and you go through whatever motions you go through. Hallelujah, you won this big boat. But turns out you can't swim. You don't like the water. You're afraid of the water. And you don't fish. Now you got a boat. Can anybody give you a boat and make you happy about a boat if you're not happy about a boat? No. But what if behind door number one, instead of a boat, there was a trip to Europe? And you love Europe. Your grandfather was in World War II and he told you stories about Europe. And you want to go to Europe and see all the castles and eat the food. And then come home and be glad you have American food. <laughs> uh, and you're going to see all these tourist spots. And you, know, you want to go and see London and Paris and whatever. You love that idea. And you are so excited. And you talking among your family. You say, well, you know, you, you could have had the boat or you could have had the trip to Europe. But you got the trip to Europe. Why is that better? I don't know. I just wanted that. I just like that. Well, you know what's going on in the world today? There are angels climbing a ladder in and out of heaven every moment of every day. And it turns out they're doing the bidding of God for you, and they're serving you, helping you, strengthening you, blessing you. And they're also taking on the demons of hell. And they are at war against those demons. And the agenda of those demons is to blind, or if you will, to confuse the hearts of the unbelieving. And they're doing it really well. So well that they are entirely blind, completely blind, completely blind. They don't know about God because they don't want to know about God. Because in their soul, they are blind to God. But faith, faith, the work of these angels to distribute, to, to, to advance, to, to, to help those of us who see is to come alongside us and to show us these things. You might look at the scripture and you say, how could anybody look at that and not believe? Because they don't see. And they don't want to see. But you, friend, you do see. 
So you have a responsibility to yourself to keep seeing, to keep believing. That's one of the, the, the important messages of the entire book of Hebrews. Don't stop believing. Somebody ought to write a song. Don't stop believing. This is the truth. Look back. Look around. Look to the future. It's all true. You have eyes to see. Believe it. But beyond that, tell other people. Tell them that that which you see, they can see. That they must see. That they're accountable for not seeing. Warn them. Warn them. Warn them. That if they don't see, they are condemned. Because that's a second reason for the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10. And again in chapter 12, he's going to warn us that if we leave Jesus, we are damned. So warn unbelievers. Warn them that if they don't repent, if they don't believe, that there is a great calamity awaiting them. They can't see it. They don't understand it. They don't even believe it. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't warn them. Saving faith is certain toward Christ. And it orders our life. It changes our life. We are a missionary people. We're an evangelistic people. We're a helping people. We're a serving people because of Christ, because of the promise of Christ, because of the promised return of Christ. And we know he's coming, even though we haven't seen him come, because we believe, we are sure, we are certain that that which he has done is that what he will do. He is the substance. He is the foundation. He is the ground of all we believe. And then he says, and I conclude, verse 2. For by faith, by it, the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, all are saved, and without faith, none are saved. None. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob. Not David, not Daniel, not Samson, not Barak, not Gideon, not any of them. None of them are saved if they don't have faith. They don't have to have perfect faith because no one does. That's why we sin, because our faith is not perfect. You see, all of us are doubters in some way. But saving faith latches on to Jesus and latches on to the promises of God and believes that this is the only way. You may be tempted by your troubles to believe that your troubles are brand new. They are not. You may be tempted to believe that your troubles indicate that God has forgotten you. He has not. You may be tempted to believe that you're alone in this journey and that nobody else has your troubles like you or with you, but you are not. You may be tempted to believe that God is powerless to answer your hope in him with rescue and redemption unto eternal life. He is not. You may be tempted to believe that Jesus is a lie and that everything he said and ever promise that he would do is a lie. It turns out Jesus is not a liar. 
You may be tempted by your circumstances to not believe, to jump ship and run to some plan B. But don't do that because there is no plan B. By faith, everyone who has faith is saved. And without faith, everyone who does not have faith is condemned. Look to God. Look to his son. There is only one way. And oh my, what a way. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you. That when we were lost, and in rebellion against you. Your son came. Your son came to complete the work started by angels and prophets. Your son came to die for us, to be our eternal sacrifice, to give his perfect life and his perfect blood that we who by looking to him might be saved thank you father we love you so we need you so I pray father for those who do not believe maybe they're watching maybe they're here but they do not believe I pray that they would come to be certain as I am, to be as assured as I am, that even though I cannot see with my eyes, I believe with my heart that the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.